Father, thank you again for this uh, book, which is a revelation, something that is supposed to clarify something in our minds. And as we go through these sequences of uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls, uh, help us to have a revelation that will bring us closer to you. Okay, so remember last time we talked about the throne room scene, how we have the seven churches, okay, and Philadelphia has an open door, Laodicea, the door is closed, and Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and then we get into the throne room scene, and there's an open door again. Okay, so the invitation to the churches is to come up and to experience something, okay, to experience a revelation. And so we have this throne room scene, which uh, we said is really unusual. Okay, God is on the throne. He's getting praise for being powerful, praise for being the creator. He's surrounded by the four living creatures, the 72 elders. Okay, but then he has this scroll in his hand. And the unusual question is asked, who is worthy? Okay, and there's silence. No one was found worthy to open the scroll. And we said just how unusual that is, that as God holds the scroll, who is worthy? Okay, remember what we talked about last time, that when the violently slaughtered lamb, when he is on the throne, then just uh, all of this incredible uh, imagery changes. So God initially sounds surrounded by the four and the 72, but when God is perceived as the violently slaughtered lamb, now we see thousands and millions, and there's this incredible amplification of praise. Okay, so the numbers here, I think more than identifying who are the four living creatures, who are the 72 elders, it's a kind of a, a literary device to uh, create this image of amplification of praise as God is revealed in the person of Jesus. Okay, so the scroll here in Revelation 5.1, I saw the scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. It was covered with writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. So we're going to kind of go through the opening of the seals and talk about uh, what that means. Okay, so the lamb broke open the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice that sounded like thunder, come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. He rode out as a conqueror to conquer. Okay, we'll spend most of the time today as we go through the seals trying to figure out uh, the identity here of uh, this first horse and the rider. Okay, so just to think about who's the rider, is this a good individual or a bad individual? Or is this, um, rather than a person, does it represent a time period? Okay, what's, what's being described here? And I think one important thing is to tie it back to what happened in the throne room scene. Who is worthy? And the breaking of the seals is going to have something to do with the issue uh, that happened in the throne room scene. So remember, the book of Revelation is made up of the Old Testament. So we always want to find where is the Old Testament reference, take it seriously, and read all around what is said in the Old Testament. So the throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5, um, some of this is from Isaiah, but I think probably the best Old Testament reference is uh, Ezekiel 1. There are a lot of parallels. Both passages describe God in all his glory. Okay, remember the complex wheels within the wheels and all of that imagery in Ezekiel 1? Um, in both Revelation and Ezekiel, we have God surrounded by four living creatures. Okay, and it just would seem not accidental that they both images have the faces of human, lion, bull, and an eagle. Okay, so we have similar imagery. Uh, both Revelation and Ezekiel describe blazing torches, colors of the rainbow, flashes of lightning. And both have a 
coveted middle or center. Okay, remember, the center of the throne room scene is the violently slaughtered lamb. We get right down to the heart. That's at the center. And there's also a center in Ezekiel, or middle or a center, and that is the dazzling light which shows the presence of the Lord. So they both are focusing in on this uh, center ground. Okay, so Ezekiel will be really important here as we try to understand uh, the, the seals and the opening of, of the scroll. So in Revelation, remember we said that the scroll is covered with writing on both sides, and if we just go from Ezekiel 1 to Ezekiel 2, the scroll also has writing on both sides. Okay, so this is kind of where we want to understand what is going on here in Revelation. In Revelation 5, the question is asked, who is worthy? And there's silence in heaven. And John began to weep bitterly. Okay, when we think about the scroll in Ezekiel, there are cries of grief were written there and wails and groans. So we have, again, cries and grief surrounding this scroll. And that is really a, a theme of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. I mean, they're devastating. It seems to be bad things that are happening with the unveiling of, of all three of these um, sequences. Not all bad, but, but a lot of uh, destruction uh, that the imagery describes. Okay, so let, let's go through the seals a little bit before we go back and try to talk about who's the first rider. So the second seal is another horse came out, a red one. And its rider was given the power to take peace away from the earth. So not much difficulty here seeing that this is a, whatever is being described here, this is a, a negative, a bad description. Power to take peace away from the earth and to make people slaughter one another. So he was given a large sword. And many have seen here in this horse and in the red imagery, um, some, some allusion to war. Okay, the third seal. The lamb broke open the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what sounded like a voice coming from among, among the four living creatures, which said, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages. And so kind of a, a description here of poverty, hunger. Again, a, a bad revelation here as we get into this uh, black um, uh, horse. Okay, and it just gets worse. Okay, we get to the fourth seal, and now there was a pale-colored horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades followed close behind. They were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill by means of war, famine, disease, and wild animals. And again, many interpreters have seen here in the pale horse. Well, we're actually given the description here, Death. Okay, so we go from war and destruction, poverty and famine, um, all the way to Death. Okay, so again, what's the description? I would say most uh, interpreters, at least that I have read, see the first writer as Jesus or perhaps the early Christian church, which we said did a lot of good things prior to Constantine. Okay, so I think there are some valid reasons where we could describe it that way. Okay, and probably the most compelling reason people go that direction is, well, a white horse, white is good. So it has to be good. Well, I'm going to give you another, a different way of, of looking at this. And for me, what is most helpful is to see that the seals, the trumpets, the bowls are not in a chronological continuum, if we, as we've described, but are rather overlapping, are giving, informing each other of information. And so, especially when we get to the trumpets, 
um, as uh, Sigmund Tonstad has, has said, the, the trumpets are the DNA, driver's license, the evidence at the crime scene that points towards the satanic. Okay, so we can really make a strong case for that in the trumpet sequence, which we'll do next time. Okay, but I think that does inform us about the seal sequence. And so again, we want to relate what is being opened in the seals to the dilemma that faced the heavenly council. So I read these last time by an important book by Adela um, Collins, The Apocalypse. And she said that the first four verses of chapter five imply the heavenly council is faced with a serious problem. Who is worthy? And that in the context of the apocalypse as a whole, it is clear that the problem facing the heavenly council is the rebellion of Satan, which is paralleled by rebellion on earth. Chapter five presupposes the old story of Satan's rebellion against God, which leads to the fall of creation. Okay, so again, that's the issue. Okay, and we see how the violently slaughtered lamb brings all the praise back to God. Okay, but I think what is described in the opening of the seals is really how that works. Okay, so um, really, maybe we should have started on Revelation, going through Revelation 12 through 14, the war in heaven and all of that. But I think we have talked about that theme so much this year in the Bible study that I decided we're just going to kind of go through the chapters. Okay, but of course, Revelation 12 and 14 do describe the dragon with its tail dragging down a third of the stars of heaven. And uh, of course, we, we've talked so much about uh, what happened in Eden. Okay, and so I think this is what I would like to propose here as the identity here of the first writer. Okay, that Paul would say, well, no wonder, even Satan can disguise himself to look like an angel of light. Everything that appears white and good is not necessarily good. So what would be some evidence for that? Well, in Revelation, God is continually described as holding back the winds, okay, trying to prevent um, all of these bad things from happening, whereas Satan through the dragon and the beast is described as doing things like uh, he was allowed to wage war against God's holy people to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Everyone living on the earth will worship it. Okay, so we have these kinds of descriptions that may inform us, again, looking back on the seals. Okay, and, and other interpreters have, have considered this possibility uh, from this book, called the Rider on the White Horse. The Rider on the White Horse appears as a part of a group that acts as demonic agents of destruction. And in Sigmund Tonstead's book, he quotes an Alan Kersliger who takes the White Horse to signify deception and counterfeit activity on the part of the writer. And again, I think perhaps the best rationale for this is if we see all of these trumpet seals and bowls as pointing to the issues in the cosmic conflict and if we allow the trumpets to tell us something about the seals, um, then I think perhaps we can, we can make that clear. And, and again, if we see these not as chronological, but rather as overlapping, and there are so many uh, links of identity where we can associate all three of these sequences together. We did that in our first uh, Bible study. And also so many things where we can see that they have the same ending point. Okay, we'll come to this uh, at the end of this Bible study, but the seals end with every tear being wiped from every eye. Well, that's, that's the same as the, the conclusion of the book of Revelation. It, it is the, the end, at the end of the seals. Now, the trumpets tell us some additional information, as do the bulls. Okay, so 
let's come back to Ezekiel. Do we have an Old Testament reference for this writer that comes out with a bow? Okay, and, and several people have seen uh, parallels with uh, Gog, of course, a, a bad writer in Ezekiel who also carries a bow. Okay, so we'll just uh, read the description here from Ezekiel 39. So the sovereign Lord sent me to tell Gog what he was saying to him. Now while my people Israel, people Israel live in security, you will set out to come from your place in the far north. Now, that's interesting in Isaiah 5. Okay, the adversary seeks to set his sights on the north. Okay, leading a large, powerful army of soldiers from many nations, all of them on horseback. You will attack my people Israel like a storm moving across the land. When the time comes, I will send you to invade my land. Now notice, why is Gog allowed to do all of this? In order to show the nations who I am, to show my holiness by what I do through you. Now, Gog brings devastation and destruction, this uh, symbolic figure. Okay, so God is obviously not um, you know, wanting that to, to happen, but the result is in order to show the nations who I am, to show my holiness by what I do or what I allow you to do. Okay, it's, and it's kind of like uh, you know, when you've been lied about, okay, not only do you need to reveal yourself, to be not the way you have made out, the other person has made you out to be, but oftentimes it is the revelation of the one who is the deceiver that is very important. Okay, so what is coming out here is that the revelation of the adversary, seen in all of his ugliness, okay, that helps to make the contrast um, even greater between the two. The adversary is exposed, and in that way, God's holiness, he's able to reveal more clearly who he is. Okay, the sovereign Lord said, Mortal man, denounce Gog, the chief ruler of the nations of Meshech, Tubal, and tell him that I am his enemy. I will turn him in a new direction and lead him out of the far north until he comes to the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock his bow out of his left hand and his arrows out of his right hand. Okay, so perhaps this is helpful to inform us uh, about that first writer. And again, from Sigby's book, uh, why, why is this necessary? Okay, if the deceiver is partly to be unmasked by the evidence of his own actions. It means that he will be granted the opportunity to bring his design to fruition. Satan must be allowed to commit evil for his evil character to manifest. Okay, it's, this is really a, a risk, I would have to say, from, uh, from God's perspective. I think we've talked so much about how, why didn't God just eliminate Satan and the angels that followed him? Okay. First of all, I, I would say that isn't in his character to do that, but just imagine what would have happened if he had settled the controversy that way. Okay, if you were a loyal angel, okay, well, what happened to Lucifer? What happened to these other individuals? Well, God eliminated them. Okay, how would you feel about God? I mean, service to God would be rendered by fear. If God just wiped people out who had a bad thought and who um, decided to go a different direction. Okay, so the, the rebellion really had to blossom, okay, and in two directions it blossomed. We see the revelation of God, okay, we see the revelation of the other side. It becomes crystal clear, especially as we um, get to the cross. So I would say the four horses reveal and expose Satan's kingdom to be a fraud, one that leads to destruction and death. We see in the end, by the time we get to the fourth horse, ah, this is where it leads, okay? There's, there's no positive pleasures Okay, there's nothing in 
that is positive that we can say about Satan's kingdom. It leads to death. Okay, the other significant thing internally in Revelation is that there are two writers. We have the writer we've just been talking about in Revelation 6, but there's a writer in Revelation 19. Okay, and there's no doubt about the identity of the writer in Revelation 19, but let's just contrast a little bit. In Revelation 6, of course, this writer goes out with a bow to conquer. The end result is bloodshed and death. Okay, in Revelation 19, okay, the sword is not in the hand. The sword comes out of the mouth of the writer. Okay, and the sword, of course, in so many uh, scriptural references for this, this is the sword of truth. Okay, the, the methods of this writer is the revelation of truth spoken in love, non-coercively. Okay, very different, perhaps, than the other writer. And this writer is named Faithful and True. Okay, would this almost be a contrast that the other writer is not faithful and true? And the writer in Revelation 19, his robe is covered with blood. Whose blood is it? Okay, blood of his enemies? No, this is his own blood. Okay, so the, the writer in Revelation 19 comes as it is the violently slaughtered lamb. It is God, the blood of his, his own blood on the road. Okay, so I think we have some pretty significant contrast between those two writers as well. Now, so what is the, what is the natural next thing to think about? We have all this, uh, all the things going on in this earth and everyone always asks, why did God allow? Why did God do this? Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Um, I, I've almost never heard anyone blame Satan for any of the suffering that goes on in this world. Okay, I always hear these questions on the radio, on TV. So where are you, God? Why do you seem to be silent? How can an all-powerful God, an all-loving God, allow this to happen to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? How can my prayers for help seem to go answered? Where was God when... I mean, patients ask this all the time. Um, at the VA just a few weeks ago, I diagnosed a man in his late 40s with ALS. Hey, we had a long talk about it. And, um, you know, he's uh, an elder in this church and he is just in a crisis. How could God allow this to happen to me? Okay, and so it is a natural question. And I think the Bible encourages us to ask God directly. So many of the Psalms are complaints. God, why did this happen? Moses talked with God so um, directly. So it isn't that these questions are wrong, but it often comes from a framework that involves only God and us. And there is no third part of that triangle with an adversary, with rebellion, and all of the results of that um, rebellion. Okay, so the first four seals reveal death and destruction Okay, so the natural question then is, I think, asked in the fifth seal. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had given about him. They cried out in a loud voice, Holy and true Master, how long before you judge and take revenge on those living on earth who shed our blood? So the question is, God, what are you doing? It doesn't make sense. Look at what's going on in our world. How long before you lacked? and do something. This is really the, the theodicy question that is being asked here. And I think it's, it's a natural progression uh, after we see what has gone on here in the, uh, uh, the first four uh, seals, the four horses leading to death and to destruction. Yeah, I think one thing we could say here, it's kind of interesting, when you look at God's best friends all the way through the Bible, 
it almost seems like they had the worst of it. Okay, from Cain and Abel. Why didn't God prevent Cain from killing Abel? Uh, why was Isaiah sawed in half in a hollow log by King Manasseh? Uh, why was Jeremiah stoned to death in Egypt? Uh, why was John the Baptist greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus? Why was he beheaded when Jesus is right there? Okay, uh, why was uh, James killed? Uh, and all of the prophets, or disciples, I should say. And Paul was whipped and stoned and left for dead. Um, so we have oftentimes, or it's often thought, that if you're a follower of God, that wealth and health and all of these things are, are bound to, to follow. But that's not what the Bible tells us, uh, it would seem. At least just looking at the lives of many of God's closest friends. And the words here, the answer to the, the question in the fifth seal doesn't seem very satisfying, really. So each of the souls was given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until all their co-workers, the other Christians, would be killed as they had been killed. So, well, it's going to continue on. Is that really uh, satisfying? Okay, this is almost similar to uh, what happened in Habakkuk. Uh, if you remember when we talked about that, Habakkuk asked, God, how can you allow this to happen? And God essentially says to Habakkuk, well, just wait, it'll get worse. Okay, And that almost seems to be the answer um, here. So we get to the sixth seal. Okay, again, we want to get through the whole thing because I think an answer comes. <clears throat> but we have to get to the seventh seal <clears throat> before there is a satisfactory answer to this. And so a lot of the sixth seal uh, I'm going to come back to, I think are better explained when we go through the trumpet and the bowl sequence. But this is just very vivid imagery, as is typical of um, apocalyptic literature. So we have a violent earthquake, <clears throat> the sun blackened, the moon turns to blood, stars fall, the sky disappeared. We have kings, rulers, military chiefs, rich, powerful, and all other people, slave and free. They hid themselves in caves, and they called out, Fall on us and hide us from the eyes of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay, we will come back to this. We've uh, had a whole talk on God's wrath in the Old Testament. And I guess the only point I'll make here is, again, anytime we read something in Revelation, take everything that the Old Testament has to say about that and the New Testament. What is God's wrath? Okay, that's very significant. And also just the imagery here, the wrath of the lamb. Um, have you ever seen a movie about a lamb that was a monster or a destroying creature? I mean, this is more than just identifying, oh, this is Jesus. Okay, the wrath of the Lamb, and just the imagery used here is, I think, um, significant as well. Um, in Revelation 13, the beast also has a wrath. Okay, the, but the wrath is of, I would say, very different um, quality and character. Remember Jesus' words on the cross. Why have you given me up? Okay, how God's wrath again and again and again is handing over, abandoning, forsaking. Um, so we, I think we'd want to see it in that light. But let's come back, back to that later. So we have, in the sixth seal, a contrast of two groups. Here's one group. Okay, that wants nothing to do with God and they're running away. Okay, we have another group, the 144,000. Very different. So after this I looked and there was an enormous crowd. No one could count all the people. They were from every race, tribe, nation, and language and they stood in front of the throne and of the Lamb dressed in white robes holding palm branches in their hands. Okay, and so the question is asked, who are these people dressed in white robes? Where do they come from? Okay, well they have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Okay, some good uh, symbolism there, which we'll talk about later. 
The lamb who is the center of the throne will be their shepherd. So many times in Revelation, the people who are described as God's followers, they follow the one who is at the center of the throne, the, the lamb. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, this is the end of the story. We come to the very end of Revelation. Same thing. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. They will see his face. Okay, so we, we come to the end. But what is the meaning, the difference between these two groups? Okay, and, and if we allow a little putting in some other parts from the book of Revelation, okay, we have one group that's described as worshiping the lamb-like beast, the dragon, and they receive the mark of the beast. Okay, these people are always crying. Okay, in, in Revelation 1, all people on earth will mourn over him. They, they are always crying about the revelation or the return of Jesus, and they ask, hide us from the face of the lamb. Okay, the 144,000 is a, the polar opposite. Okay, they don't worship the lamb like beast. The lamb will be their shepherd. And they don't receive the mark of the beast, they receive the seal of God. They're not crying. Twice, God is described as wiping away all their tears. These people say, hide us from the face of the lamb. And these people in Revelation 22.4 will see his face. Okay, so we're, we're meant to contrast and to understand um, the meaning here of these two different groups. A lot of uh, significance to this, which I think we'll talk about later. Okay, but we want to try to tie all this together with the seventh seal. I think the seventh seal brings it all the way back to uh, what we talked about uh, last time, the revelation of the violently slaughtered lamb. I think it answers the question. It explains how we go from four to 72 to thousands and millions and everyone worshiping God. So when the lamb broke open the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Okay, now I won't talk about the half an hour. There are some things that uh, I'm still trying to understand in Revelation. But what is, what is the silence in heaven? And in fact, just as you think about the Old Testament, um, what book in the Old Testament tells us the most about the violently slaughtered lamb, the suffering servant? Where would you go to, to read about that kind of imagery? Is there a book that comes to mind? Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah, so we, we turn to Isaiah, and again, the, the revelation is contrasting here between these two creatures. Okay, and the imagery does come from Isaiah. And so Isaiah 52, and then going into 53, it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament. And I think this is the best candidate Old Testament passage for this silence in heaven. Okay, it's just beautiful words here. Just watch my servant blossom, exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin that way. This is from the message uh, paraphrase. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured, past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Okay, and so your other translations will say something like, kings will be speechless with amazement. They will see and understand something they have never known. Okay, and if you just read on, we learn what it is that they see and understand that they had never known. What is it that shocks them into silence? Okay, and that is the whole of, of the next chapter um, here in Isaiah 53. Okay, just the astonishment here in the words. Who believes what we've seen and heard? 
Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? Again, kind of an answer to that fifth seal. God, what are you doing? Who would have thought that it would look like this? Okay, here's the description. The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about it, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. <clears throat> Justice miscarried, and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Okay. And I think this, if we allow this to be the, you know, kind of the, the expansion, the explanation for the silence in heaven, this is what brings us back to, oh, the one at the center of the throne is the violently slaughtered lamb. It is, it tells us about the person who is on the throne. And I think that uh, silence can even be a higher form of praise. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but when my uh, oldest son was born, um, I, I couldn't say anything. I mean, it was just so amazing. It's almost a higher form when you're speechless with praise. And so I think the, the revelation, when it's really come to, to be fully understood, okay, we haven't fully understood this, when we really see that the one with all the power is the one who came, who was a servant, who laid down his life, um, that's, that's a God you want to serve. Okay, we're always living in fear of having our freedoms taken away, but when the one who's all-powerful is like that, well, you have no problem being a part of that person's kingdom. That's someone you can really trust. Okay, so stunned silence. And, and again, from Sigvi's book, this is where uh, I first learned about this. Uh, he said, The scroll confronts the council with a seemingly insoluble predicament, a veritable crisis in the divine government, highlighted by the tears of the seer, and by the silence of everyone else. Remember, no one could say anything when the question was asked, who is worthy? The breaking of the seals signifies that this predicament has been fully worked out. And with the breaking of the seventh seal comes a sense of closure to the heavenly council. Only when the lamb in its slaughtered state is allowed to exert a commanding influence on the entire scene will the representative biblical imagery for the silence in heaven receive its due. The text in Isaiah is about silence the silence of shock and awe in the face of an entirely unexpected manifestation. Revelation presents an analogous situation when the heavenly council confronts a, dis a disclosure that defies expectations. But the relationship between these texts consists of more than an analogy. The startling nature of what is disclosed, causing kings to shut their mouths because of him, according to Isaiah, belongs organically to the vision of the lamb that is led to the slaughter in the original Old Testament context. 
Moreover, both texts describe the fate of the lamb, one anticipating it, the other one after the fact. Okay, so again, if we, if we come back to the fifth seal, when, I think when we look back and we consider all of the suffering on this planet, I think the only satisfactory explanation has to include that God has suffered the most. Okay, I think that has to be at the core. How we explain all the bad things that happen? Uh, God is not just off, distant on his throne observing all of this. He got into the mix. He spent nine months in the wound and he laid everything aside as God. Okay, I think that, however we describe the suffering in our world, uh, that has to be at the core of it. All right, so um, I think next time we will talk about the trumpets and email me with um, any of your questions. Hey, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, it seems that uh, the book of Revelation could just end right here with such an incredible picture of you, um, the all-powerful one coming in such humble form and the way you lived, the way you died. Um, help that image of you to really become a part of us that that is the center of who we believe God to be and uh, that that changes us from within. Thank you so much for um, this imagery, which is often so confusing, but uh, perhaps when understood, uh, brings us to a greater revelation of who you are. Amen.